welcome back to another trailblazing, cosmos-shaking episode of Disclosure, the newest radio offering from the good folks here at The Voice of Prophecy. My name is Sean Boonstra, and for the next 58 minutes or so, depending on where you happen to be living, I will be hopefully occupying your acoustic environment and serving as your host from our studios here in drop-dead gorgeous Loveland, Colorado, right here at the foot of Long's Peak, a mountain that rises something like 14,000 feet above sea level. They've done a little count. I think there are nearly 60 peaks that high here, and that is a bit of paradise for me. I've always said that I want to live where there are mountains or ocean or both. Um, And so I'm excited. I'm excited that we've got all these 14,000-foot peaks around here. They call them 14ers here in Colorado. I do have one complaint, though, about Colorado. When I first moved here about, oh, a year and a half ago, going on two years ago, I heard about all this phenomenal sunshine they're supposed to get in this state. And they'll tell you, when you're on your way into Colorado, when you're thinking about moving there, that Colorado gets something like 300 days of sunshine every single year, which is actually more sun than they get in Southern California, if I'm not mistaken. 300. Hundred days. And when you're on your way into Colorado, you tend to believe what they're saying. But I've got to say that this past spring, I started to doubt Colorado's claims because for the last half of April and the first half of May, the skies opened up and they never turned back off. We had nonstop rain. And folks, by nonstop rain, I mean go outside and start building your ark kind of rain. I mean, it rained and rained and rained to the point where Loveland, Colorado actually turned into Seattle, Washington. It was gray and dreary and wet. And I guess the only upside to all of that is that my lawn has never, ever looked better. It is green. It is a rich, dark, luxurious green. And it almost looks now to the neighbors like I know what I'm doing out in my lawn. And and that's a really big deal because I'm actually the son of Dutch immigrants. And if you ever met a Dutch immigrant, if you know anything at all about my clan, it's that most of them know how to make things grow. I mean, they have this genetically hardwired gift for landscaping and gardening. And somehow, even though Dutch blood runs very thick in my veins, the gift, the green thumb has skipped my generation altogether. I mean, if the truth be told, if I'm really honest here on the radio, and I need to be honest, this is a Bible-based show, I hate gardening. I've said it now, it's, it's out loud, I loathe gardening. I detest gardening. Now, my youngest daughter, she loves it. In fact, she went out this year on her birthday, which falls in May, and she, she actually asked for gardening tools for her 14th birthday, boggles my mind. I can't imagine anybody wanting gardening tools because that means you're going to have to garden. I can think of 40 other things I'd rather ask for for my birthday, but she's 14. She's really into it. And so maybe, maybe gardening is a recessive gene for the Dutch and it's resurfacing in the next generation. But I digress. Gardens and rain aren't really my topic today. I'm safe from the rain down here in the basement studio of The Voice of Prophecy. Uh, and uh, and I'm going to switch to our topic for today. Plants and gardening aren't really our topic, but they might kind of make a good segue for introducing my esteemed guest for today, Dr. Timothy Standish of the Geoscience Research Institute. Now, Dr. Standish is standing by on the phone. He holds a Ph.D. in environmental biology and public policy from George 
Mason University. He has an MS in biology from Andrews University. He did his undergraduate work way back when in zoology. He, uh, his research interests include uh, observed changes in DNA, uh, macromolecules preserved in ancient biological samples, and, and the reason he's on the show today, he has an interest in how intelligent design relates to biblical creationism. And I guess intelligent design and creationism can be something of a no-no for some people in the world of science who don't want to see the other side of the coin. But I know that Dr. Standish knows his stuff and that he's honest with the data, and he's very interesting to talk to. So, Dr. Standish, if you're there on the phone, welcome to the show today. Well, thank you so much. It's great to talk with you, Sean. Hey, it is good to talk to you, uh, hear your voice on the other end. I think the last time we talked together on air was in a project about, oh, eight or nine years ago. It's starting to push a decade, a TV project I was working on called Out of Thin Air. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, I remember. I remember it. Yeah, you do. Wow. Um, I, well, I remember two <laughs> it's things. It's almost the olden days. It's now, almost, it's nearly a yeah. decade. You know? <laughs> yeah. uh, my kids can't imagine the world existed a decade ago. Or two decades ago, I guess. They're teenagers now. Um, We had a good time on that show, though. I remember two things. Two things. You joined me for two of four episodes, I think. And and the first thing I remember about that show is you brought in this massive fossilized fish. I think you actually found that one. Oh, yeah. That was probably one, uh, the Green River Formation fish. Yeah, it it was a big fish, and uh, it was sort of in the process of being... uh, uh, exploded. I don't know how I would describe it, but that's it was... right. It, the, the reason I love that fossil is that uh, it kind of looked like one of those, um, you know, exploding diagrams that you that you sometimes get of machines and oh yeah, and yeah. things and uh, and uh, it, I, I appreciated the fact that it was such a mystery. How on earth do you get a fossil like that that looks like it's simply caught in mid explosion, <laughs> um, laying very patiently for a very long time to be covered by silt? Yeah. yeah. Hey, the other thing I remember, the other thing, and I don't know if you remember this, you were so engaging, and I'm going to be the one who says it, you were so engaging, people were so enthralled with what you were talking about, what you were describing, that at the end, we we opened up the floor for questions and answers, and you were so engaging that at the end of the show, one woman was so enthralled that she actually stood up and proposed marriage. Do you remember that? She said... Are you married? Are you married? She, I mean, she just she was so enthralled that she wanted to spend the rest of her life listening to what you had to say. You know, that happens so infrequently with me that I actually <laughs> do remember that event. Yeah. Um, in fact, I could probably say that's the only time a woman has, has proposed to me. Yeah. Well, I, I tell my daughter that it happened to me a lot. Yeah, but, of course. <laughs> um, yes, but, but the reality was, yes, it was slim pickings with women proposing to me so that one's stuffed away in 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 my head so if, if anybody ever actually demands an example i actually have one there you go you know i've tried to t- convince my children that i was cool i i asked them one time i said you know hey is daddy cool and they said no you're not cool i said but you know i was cool right and they said no we can't no no there's no way and i was bluffing frankly dr standish i i was blu- i never was cool but they don't know that they didn't exist back in the 80s i mean how did they that's know that's right you'd think that they could have just sort of pretended by yeah. nodding just for a minute wouldn't you no that's right i will never be cool again and in their estimate i'm any i'm i'm at this stage now where i'm actually embarrassing uh, yes. and i've got to admit well, I, I will tell you that one of the things i do is actually wake up in the morning and thank god that I wasn't cool when I was in high school, because I think that 
life might have seemed a little bit like it was going downhill otherwise. <laughs> As it is, maybe. I mean, there's, there's always that possibility out in the future of being cool. Yeah. Yeah, you can maybe, always aspire to Maybe someday to it. something will happen and I will be cool. More women will propose to me <laughs> in very public settings. I think we should sell your fish fossil because it's just it's a babe magnet. I think that's what's going on there. Hey, listen, we need to get to our topic, though. We could talk all day about being cool. Um, and we're going to get into biology and, and so on. And, and, um, and to be really honest and frank, I, a little while ago, I accidentally let you in on a little secret. Once upon a time, for a very brief moment of time, I was actually a, a biology major um, because I was thinking about a career in medicine. And all pre-meds had to take a special track of biology courses, which I suppose is a good idea for doctors to know. Probably for the best. Of yeah, the it, it probably was. Biology, but they, yeah. yeah, they they showed us a childbirth film though, and it was black and white. But that was enough. I I signed out of the program that afternoon. I felt so sick to my stomach. I thought I can't, I can't do that for a living. Um, and so that started me down the path to leaving biology. But it was botany. It was botany that turned me off because it was just applied chemistry, and and they had fooled me into taking a botany course. Um, but I do remember one thing, and here's where I want to probably t- start our discussion today. Yeah. I remember in the classroom that there was this unspoken assumption, and sometimes it was actually a spoken assumption. Faith and science don't mix. Don't you ever bring those two topics together. They're from two completely different realms. One is empirical and rational. Science is the stuff that built the world we enjoy but the other one is mythology, and basically it's rudimentary pre-philosophical thought. It doesn't even amount to Greek philosophy. It's what heathens had before they had philosophy. So don't you bring it in here. There was this. So I, I guess the question is: Is there this still this conflict between science and faith going on in the community? Um, here's the way I would put it: uh, There is a conflict, but it is a conflict between faith. One faith and another faith, or actually many different faiths. I know some people are going to bristle as you say that, so unpack it for me. Okay. Let me me illustrate it with an example. Science, what precisely is it? Well, there are lots of philosophers, actually, that sit around and try to define what science is, and there there are a number of different theories about it. However, everybody agrees that science has an authority, and that authority is empirical knowledge. Right. We, I, as a scientist, believe that what I take in through my senses is a reflection of reality. It's an accurate picture of reality that I get. So I am sitting here looking at my broken MacBook Pro computer in front of me. Right. And my eyes are not lying it, it you know there 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 is um an an aluminum case to it and all sorts of other things it is um it's there i can reach out and i can touch it so that's what we mean by empirical knowledge think knowledge that data that we can get through our senses in some way well i, do, I don't want to be is, the i don't want to yeah. be the philosopher for a moment yeah. but yeah, well no i'm probably going down a path we don't need to go down but if you're looking at that there's only so much concrete information you could take in, and then your brain has to translate it into abstract thought. It just it just does. I can't well, see your computers, but I can imagine it. Why? Because I have this category called aluminum case and laptop in my brain. 
Yes. Well, I mean, that's that's part of what's going on here. I mean, obviously, I don't understand everything there is to understand about this computer, even though I'm taking in lots and lots of information about it um, uh, through my senses. But here's the thing. Why would I believe that what I take in through my senses is, in fact, a reflection of reality? That's a, a metaphysical question. It's not a question that really is addressable using science itself. It's something that we take purely by faith. And it's worth pointing out that there are belief systems that do not believe that what you take in through your senses is in fact a reflection of reality. Um, certainly some kinds, of, some forms of, of, of Buddhism uh, believe, you know, they, they, they see what we perceive as an illusion of some kind. And certainly uh, certain forms of, of Hinduism. Um, I, I enjoy right. reading uh, different uh, what different philosophers have to say. Let me let and me pause you. Let me pause you on that thought because yeah. they're waving at me from the control room. We're up against a break. I want to come okay. back to that though because there are big assumptions even in empiricism, in empirical thought, as you're pointing out, folks. We do have to take a break. I want you to take advantage of this offer from the Voice of Prophecy. You might want to run quickly and grab a pen and paper because the kinds of offers that come from these folks here at the Voice of Prophecy, you really don't want to miss. And then right after this break, I'll be back with Doctor. Timothy Standish. Are you searching for answers to life's toughest questions like, where is God when we suffer? Can I find real happiness? Or is there any hope for our chaotic world? The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Study online on our secure website or have the free guides mailed right to your home. There is never a cost or obligation. The Discover Bible Guides are our free gift to you. Find answers and guides like, Does My Life Really Matter to God? and a second chance at life. You'll find answers to the things that matter most to you in each of the 26 Discover Bible Guides. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. Sean Bootstra, I'm your host here at Disclosure. My guest today on the program is Dr. Timothy Standish. And Dr. Standish, just before the break, you were mentioning that even there are assumptions even in the world of hard science, of empirical data, that there, it, when you gather data from your five senses, that, um, that there are some metaphysical assumptions about that data. And you were just starting down that road, and I cut you off so rudely for the break, but... Um, <laughs> But you were talking, there are belief systems in this world that assume that what you see with your senses cannot be trusted. Exactly. The the bottom line is this. Science itself is built on a metaphysical foundation. Um, And there are different metaphysical ideas out there that literally billions of people in the world embrace. 
they are the the foundations of science are, if you want to put it this way, just as religious as Hinduism, Buddhism, Catholicism, um, any any other ism that you want to add there. It is not necessarily a self-evident truth that empirical data really tell us about reality. Now, I, I'm a Christian, and I certainly believe that our senses do give us a reasonable understanding of the world around us. That's why I believe that science is a useful and um, fantastic endeavor. So you're a believer in objective reality. I mean, that that yes. is the Christian worldview. Yes. There is a real world, and we really do live in it, and it's and it's it's quite physical. But, but well, it's not it's not coincidental that modern science, as we know it today, arose in a, within a kind of Christian culture. Now, that's not to say that everything was smooth and and uh, worked out perfectly and there were no conflicts or anything like that. However, it's indisputable that science as we know it today has it, uh, arose in, um, in a Christian milieu. Right. There was an assumption of some kind of design to seek for, I would assume, or some kind of order would be a better well, word, maybe. That, 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 really, the, the assumption, the way I would put it, is that there is some kind of truth that exists out there that is is actually there to be discovered. Sure. Yeah, uh, that's, absolutely. That's a metaphysical assumption. You know, I've always asked myself the question, how empirical is empirical data? Because there is no human being who can take in everything that they're they're looking at. I remember a science teacher telling me one time, well, he stopped the class. He said, did you all just hear that? And none of us had heard it. But a janitor had mo dropped a broom in the hallway, and none of us had heard it because our brains were filtering out data that it didn't find useful. And nobody can take in all the data. So we pick and choose over time what we find to be important. There is always a bias even in empiricism, isn't there? Yes, and um, and one of the things that I certainly become more aware of myself is that our our worldview, that that kind of mental filter that we use to make sense of of reality, not only can it blind us to some things, it can also open our eyes to to others. It's 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 one of the reasons why. Having people with different worldviews engaging in the scientific endeavor may be a useful thing because certainly um, our, our, our sensitiveness to different things is altered by our worldview. And, and at a more fundamental level, the very questions that we choose to ask are, are influenced strongly by our worldview. Sure. And there are, you know, I've, I hate to admit what I'm about to admit, but I've read all the four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse, what are they, Hitchens and so on, Dawkins, and, and there are some strong assumptions there that keep them from ever seeing things that are really obvious to me. They seem obvious to me, but they start from a point of view where that's not even on the table. It never comes on the table, and they won't consider some data uh, because it doesn't fit their model. Yes, well, I, um, my personal favorite is is Richard Dawkins, and and I, I I don't want to give the impression that I am 
making fun of him or anything. In fact, I believe he's a very intelligent man. I obviously disagree with him. There's no question he's bright, though. Yes. What I appreciate about his writing is how clearly he lays things out. So he constantly uh, talks about the apparent design in nature, mm-hmm. and particularly in biology. And he's a biologist, so he's, he's uh, got, you know, I mean, the, 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 the credentials at least to comment on this. He, he doesn't deny that biology looks designed. However, his materialistic, his atheistic materialistic worldview forces him to deny what he essentially observes. Sure. It, it, he, he says it is an appearance of design rather than actual intelligent design in any way that, that, that we see out there. Yeah, and but, meanwhile, I'm screaming. I'm screaming, how can you miss it? But, uh, but I come from a completely different set of data. I mean, a different yes, set I, of presuppositions. I think, I think that you could argue that Dawkins, in fact, doesn't miss it. Ah. Um, however, his worldview denies the... The, 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 the most reasonable interpretation of, of what we take in through our senses. And therefore, he has to present what he considers to be the most reasonable alternative, which within that worldview, that sort of materialistic, atheistic worldview, is most probably the, the correct one. You know what I find interesting about him is he doesn't ask all the questions, and I find this of others as well. They don't seem to ask all the questions. They're curious about some things and not others. So Dawkins will say, well, the cosmos leaves me awe-stricken. That's not a direct quote, but he says things like that. I feel a sense of awe when I look at the cosmos. I'm amazed by what I see. And as one writer pointed out, I was reading somebody a little while ago, he points out, he's saying, isn't he curious enough to know, to, to wonder, what does amazement mean? What does that sense of wonder mean? He, he doesn't ever ask that question, is where does that come? Is that just a chemical process in my brain that makes me amazed? Or is it something more than that? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I, I think that I can uh, um, uh, venture at least uh, an answer to that question of um, of whether whether it is viewed as a chemical reaction or not. Um, I, I remember having a conversation once, this is, this is many years ago, um, with James Watson, who, you'll remember, Watson and Crick, they, yeah, they were the guys who figured out that, that double helical structure of DNA. And these are, these are wonderful, interesting people, really geniuses. And um, uh, there, there were several of us, and... and uh, the the question was what's what's the next big thing? We were talking about the human genome project at the time, but what's the next big thing after we sequence the human genome? And his response was, well, um, he believed that the next big thing was explaining all of human behavior and thought in terms wow. of chemistry. <laughs> wow, in terms, in terms of atoms and so on. And and I think that that most people. Um, appreciate that there might be people out there with that kind of commitment to this materialistic, this very hard-edged materialistic view of things. However, we also understand that life is a little bit more than chemicals. Reality is, is more than a chemical reaction in our brains. And by the way, think about this. If reality, our reality, is in fact only a chemical reaction in our brain and nothing else, then why would we have confidence in this business of of empirical data? 
Well, sure. Why, why, why would we believe that what we are perceiving, which is simply a chemical reaction in our brain, why would we believe that that's an accurate so, understanding of reality that we're getting there? Even my belief in objectivity might just be a chemical reaction telling me that I am objective, and it may not be true. Precisely. Wow. It's... It's, you know, I, I came across something a while ago. It was another atheist. I shouldn't read so many atheists. I try to outweigh, you know, all of the secular some stuff of I read. guys are great authors. Oh, oh, they're great. And I've actually read some recently that are asking the right questions that I think are going to lead them up the mountain a little bit to ask, uh, what is it about me that is more than chemical? But one guy I read said, you know, if, if it's just chemical reactions, and that's what he believed. Everything's, love is a chemical reaction. Amazement and wonder are chemical reactions. Curiosity is a chemical reaction. He said, if I don't like what I'm getting, I may as well do drugs because there's nothing else out there, and I may as well alter those reactions to be the most enjoyable experience I can have before I finally punch the clock. And you kind of get into these nihilistic um, points of view where people become despondent. They say, well, I may as well just mitigate the damage while I'm waiting to die because there is no reality and I'm just a, I'm just a chemistry lab. You know, I, what amazes me about that is that over the course of history, um, the, this is a conclusion that has been drawn by people who have a materialistic view of reality. It's not a new idea at all. Um, in, in fact, um, uh, if, if you go all the way back to people like Epicurus, the, the uh, ancient Greek philosopher, right. he, um, uh, he himself didn't uh, necessarily advocate living a hedonistic lifestyle, but his followers immediately became hedonists because they essentially believed that the material world was all that exists, therefore the entirety of reality is what you take in through your senses. Well, what's the point of life? May as well it make may it, as well be to take in good things. Eat, um, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Yeah. Um, one of one of one of my um, sort of epiphanies about this was actually reading the little bits of what was written by an an Indian philosopher named Brihaspati. Uh, he lived about around 600 BC. And um, uh, he, he wrote, there is no heaven, no final liberation, nor any soul in another world. He just sort of denied the possibility of a creator god or anything like that. And um, he was the founder of a fantastic um, uh, philosophical system that's called Chavaka. And what, what's incredible to me is the, the, what were the things that, Chavaka, followers of this philosophy, did. Well, in their festivals, there were basically three things that they did. One, they drank copious amounts of alcohol. Right. Two, they engaged in sexual intercourse with as many people as they possibly could. And three, they ate meat. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> those, 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 those were sort of the, the three sacraments, if you want to call it, of that particular philosophical system. And um, it's 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 hard to imagine materialism really leading you anywhere else. It, um, it is. You know, um, we're, we're, I'm going to I'm going to push the pause button on you again. I want to return to this thought because it's big. It makes a difference how what you get out of life. But we're done with the first half of today's program. 
if, if you're worried about getting both halves of the program, don't fear. Do not panic. We're going to post it all on our website, voiceofprophecy.com. My guest today is Dr. Timothy Standish. And in just a few moments, we're going to come back to that question um, about the discussions people have had for a very long time about the nature of reality and where our assumptions lead us as we examine the world that we live in. You've been listening to Disclosure. My name is Sean Boonstra, and we'll be right back after this break. Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Do you feel as if your life has lost its meaning, just moving from one task to another without any answers to the really important questions in life? Like, is it possible to have a fresh start and to find real happiness? Well, the Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers that you're looking for to this and to all of life's big questions. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888 456 7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. You can choose to study in the format that's most convenient for you. You may either do the lessons completely online or have them mailed right to your home. Both options are completely free of charge. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. Do you feel as if you have more questions than answers in your life? Are you searching for answers to some of life's biggest questions? The Discover Bible Guides can help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or call us at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. Listening to Disclosure, the newest program from the good folks at The Voice of Prophecy. My name is Sean Boonstra, and we're in the second half of our program. Metaphorically, we've just rounded second base, and we're on our way toward third base. My guest today is Dr. Timothy Standish, and we were talking about where our assumptions about reality could lead us as we examine the world around us. And just before the break, you had mentioned an Eastern philosopher from about 600 B.C. I'm a little weak on Eastern philosophy, Dr. Stanish. I had to take Western philosophy. Uh, I was actually a philosophy major in college after I moved on from biology. And, uh, and at the end, they told us, you know, after four years of philosophy and political science and economics, they said, you better learn how to ask people if they'd like fries with their meal because that's all you've qualified yourself for. And uh, you better go to law school. You better do something with this. But I, I was actually unfamiliar with, was it Brina Sparty? Brita Sparty. Brita Sparty. It's B-R-I-H-A-S-P-A-T-I. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. Yeah. Well, basically, we well, who would know? I mean, if we get a phone call saying that's not how you pronounce it, I'd be glad for the phone call because they'll actually know the topic. Um, but basically, he comes to this conclusion, you may as well, as it's you know, stated at one point in the Bible, may as well eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a great quote of his where he basically says, borrow money and drink ghee because no one can collect the money from you after you die. 
<laughs> basically, and I don't know if you know what ghee is. Oh yeah, ghee no, no, it's clarified butter. Yeah. Um, so basically, borrow money, live a live an, an excessive life, and, and when you die, well, you know, <laughs> at least you don't have to pay the you're bill. You're not holding that debt. Oh my goodness, it, it, it's a very. Um... Well, the, you know, the nihilistic philosophers of the 19th century came to some awful conclusions, too, and based, some of them started contemplating suicide or went mad. Or These, these conclusions um, lead somewhere. You know, your, your, your point of view on the universe makes a difference on, on how you live and where you end up. But here's kind of what I want to what I want to look at. There's this kind of unspoken assumption that when Darwin published his first essay on natural selection in 1844, I think it was, which... Historically, to me, as a as a minister, he really didn't publish it. Yes, it's called his eighteen forty four sketch. Okay, his sketch. And he, it was it was really his first laying out of the idea. Well, there, historically, and it's not our show today. A lot happened that year. Joseph Smith, of the you know the Latter Day Saints, is martyred, and uh, there's the Millerite movement waiting for eighteen forty four. It's historically and religiously a very interesting year, and I've always found it very interesting that that's when his sketch came out. But the people seem to think, wow, this is brand new. This is this aha eureka moment in history, and all of these ideas were brand new, and we've just cast off the darkness of the past. But as you're pointing out, some of this thinking wasn't entirely new, was it? No, there's not, there is nothing new under the sun. One of the, one of the questions I've asked myself, and, and I don't know whether as a scientist I'm really qualified to, to find the actual answer to it, but when, when was it that, that people showed up who were actually denying anything other than the material world in, in which we live? And I, I'm not sure I've been able to come up with, with the answer to that. But interestingly enough, the oldest suggestion that I've been able to find is actually in the Bible. Um, no kidding. If you, yeah, and, and it's actually, if you want to think about it in this way, a scandalous thing in the Bible, because it looks like plagiarism. Okay. Yes, it's, it's Psalm 14.1. Okay. And Psalm fifty-three, one. Well, fifty-three, it, one. I know, but yeah. I'm not. Four, what if is it? You Psalm know 53, fourteen. Fifty-three, one. You know, fourteen, one. Because they're, they're, they both say the same thing. Okay. Um, so I, let let me read Psalm fourteen, one to you. It it says, "The fool has said in his heart, there right. is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable, abominable works. There is none who does good." So. Um, if you look at Psalm 53, 1, it's essentially the same thing, and probably both of them were written by David, so he was kind of cribbing from himself, apparently. Right. But here's the question that, that I immediately asked when I, when I read both of these texts. Who, back then, was saying there is no God? Well, there must have been someone who said it. Why would he be prompted to write it? It seems like it would be a strange thing to be responding to if it hadn't actually been said. Um, now, you could argue perhaps that um, he meant no God in Israel or something like that, but I think that's a tenuous explanation because if you look at David and the other things that he wrote, whenever he's referring to God, it's very clear that he's talking about the creator of everything. Sure. Uh, so um, my, my well, 
guess is that reasonably interpreted, he's saying, hey, there are people out here who are saying there is no God, there's no creator, there's, there's nothing other than the material world. He obviously had a low opinion of them. Well, if you, if you look at the opening chapters of the book of Romans, Paul points back to an early development. As people abandoned worship of the creator, they turned to the creation itself. And he, he points to idolatry. They made images of creation and so on. But there's definitely this early tendency away from a creator to just the physical world around you, you know, making a god out of the creation itself. So there must have been some early tendency that David is looking at from the nations around him or maybe even people among us uh, that were in his own people that had toyed with such ideas. I find it interesting. You know, we, we think that people only believed in creation in the early days of, of believers, both in Israel and the early church, because that's all the data they had. They were unenlightened. But I've always found it curious that in Hebrews chapter 11, um, the author of Hebrews says, by faith we understand the worlds were framed by the word of God. And I've asked the same question. Well, why did they state that? Uh, that it was a matter of faith that they chose that path? Well, obviously there were competing ideas on the block back then, um, and that they had to uh, speak of a creator by faith based on what they could see. they there was a marketplace of ideas thousands of years ago. Yes, well, probably probably one of the more um, destructive kind of um, memes, if you want to call it that, that, that has arisen in our modern thinking is the idea that somehow or other people in the past were ignorant, and those of us who live in the present are more enlightened in some way. Right. Um, I want to be careful about it because, in some respects, I do think that we we know we, we have more knowledge, particularly when it comes to the details of how DNA works to encode information and those sorts of things that I spend my life studying. Sure. However, when it comes to the big questions, the big philosophical questions, these people, our ancestors, were every bit as smart as us. In fact. Frequently, they come across as a lot smarter. They're thinking very, very deeply about these these things. Well, they were certainly and more were, disciplined thinkers than than our generation. It seems it seems sometimes that that's uh, that's an irrefutable conclusion. Yeah, uh, to be drawn. Yeah. So so anyway, I mean, pe- people in the past were just as smart as us. They were asking the same kinds of questions that we ask ourselves, particularly when it comes to the meaning of life, uh, why am I here, where did I come from? And they were quite clever at thinking about them, and it's prob- probably useful for us to take a look at what they thought. Well, let, let me, let me because I don't want to run out of time, I know that you work on a number of things, um, you know, changes in DNA and so on, and you whispered in my ear about a discovery a little while ago that uh, I don't know how we're going to broach this one, but you told me about a discovery with jellyfish that has upset modern thinking a little bit on evolution and, and so on. And I know I'm changing the topic a little bit, and I also know that it's a delicate subject that we're going to have to sort of step around carefully to discuss in a mature way. Um, but go ahead and tell, tell me about that again. Well, um, what, we're, what we're talking about here are a kind of jellyfish-like organism. It's, they're called comb jellies. The scientific name for them is tenophores, and um, <clears throat> they have been interesting, not only because they're fascinating animals, um, but they're interesting because they seemed like a kind of stepping stone in the, in, in the evolutionary progress of animals. 
uh, when when you look at animals, um, you can think of of animals like ourselves as being kind of we have a body plan that's more or less like a donut. Uh, by that I mean we have an outside and we have a hole that goes through the middle. Okay. And that <laughs> I, hole I'm, goes, I'm reading yeah. between the lines or inside yeah. the donut. I think and I'm getting hole, what you're saying. It starts with our mouth. <laughs> yep. And we all know where it ends. You know, my um, inner middle school is trying not to say, laugh. I, uh, yes, as a scientist, I can say the word anus. Right. And um, yes, you can't tell whether I'm smiling no. when I say it. But yes, it, um, our, the hole through the middle, our gut, it starts with our mouth and it ends with our anus. Right. And so when you are looking at the way in which organisms might have evolved. Now, bear in mind, I'm not a materialist. I'm right. a Christian. I have. Um, I, I think it's perfectly reasonable to believe the creation account that's given in the Bible. Sure, it's a very good explanation for things, and it makes a lot of sense of what we observe. However, um, if you're a materialist, you're looking for some kind of step-by-step -step way of getting from uh, something that is a single cell to something that's a blob of cells to something that has a hole through the middle of it, right? like us. Yeah. And um, if you're looking at stepping stones along the way, well, um, uh, you might evolve a mouth, but not an anus. Oh, my and goodness. That, that, that... Is, yes, that is sort of the stepping stone that tenophores were thought to, to represent. Now, there are animals out there that appear to have what we call a blind gut. That means that they take in food through their mouth. Oh, and no. Oh, no. Because they, they don't have an anus, they excrete waste uh, through the same opening. Oh, no. It's, it's a dead end. Oh, my. It's a dead end. What? Which if is this is an evolutionary stepping stone, doctor, this is a miserable stepping stone. I... It is a, you know, <laughs> we can thank God for the idea of the progress of evolution in this particular case. Um, in so, any case, yeah. So with tenophores, they were thought to be somewhere around the sponges when it comes to the evolution of a body plan. Um, and and there, there, there were different ideas about this because um, uh, some people thought that the sponges may actually have come after the tenophores, but that, that, that has always seemed um, a little bit of a tenuous idea to me. Um, if I was a materialist, I would believe that sponges came first, and then tenophores sort of branched off this tree of life a little bit later. But different ideas about it, but they were, they were built around the body plan that tenophores were thought to have. Well, this, is, this was, is going to be a perfect segue. I'm going to run out of time before this break again, but I'm going to create a little bit of a, a jellyfish uh, cliffhanger. Right here, All right. because right now we've got these life forms like sponges and jellyfish that basically have one multi-purpose orifice, and it's just a nightmare thinking about how that existence might play out. 
Folks, when we come back, I'm with Dr. Timothy Standish. I'm going to let him finish the jellyfish story because you really do need to hear the rest of this, the poor thing, poor jellyfish, and what it was that scientists saw in the comb jellyfish that they found rather amazing and and, and why. Uh, We're looking at uh, creation, whether or not it's a reasonable explanation for what we see around us. My guest is Dr. Timothy Standish, and um, he is... An expert on watching some of these things. I know you'll be delighted. Stick around after this break. We'll be right back with the rest of the story. Are you searching for answers to life's toughest questions like, Where is God when we suffer? Can I find real happiness? Or is there any hope for our chaotic world? The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Study online on our secure website or have the free guides mailed right to your home. There is never a cost or obligation. The Discover Bible Guides are our free gift to you. Find answers and guides like, Does My Life Really Matter to God? and A Second Chance at Life. You'll find answers to the things that matter most to you in each of the 26 Discover Bible Guides. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. back just before the break we left the poor sponges and jellyfish in limbo they um, they were thought to have or they do have just sort of one entering point and exit point for their digestive tract everything goes in and out of the same opening which is an awful existence but uh, dr standish you were about to reveal some new discovery with the comb jellyfish that uh, has biologists evolutionary biologists thinking about things again Dr. Stanish, um, have I lost uh, you? Yes. Ah. I'm, I'm here. I'm sorry. I didn't catch that last little bit. There was all sorts of music over the Oh, the yeah. But they, there. they always do that to me. I thought I lost you, that maybe your phone broke like your MacBook Pro. But, no, uh, no, no. The phone, the phone thankfully, is a reliable uh, technology. No. We're, we're, I was just saying we left the poor jellyfish and the sponges in an awful predicament before that's the right. break. Oh, you know, it, it, it occurred to me that, that we're really talking about something that's a little bit like Rudyard Kipling's Just So stories. The, uh, you know, how the camel got its hump, yeah. how, the, how the comb jelly got its anus. Right. That's, that's sort of the big question that, 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 that we're wrestling with here. And um, it actually, th- this, this whole story reminded me of some books that I used to enjoy reading as a child by, a, by an author named Richmond Crompton. And there was a hero in this, in this story. Um, he, his name was William Brown. And uh, William was a little bit of a troublemaker. I could, I could identify with him just sure. a little bit. Um, it turns out that there is a scientist with exactly the same name, William Brown, and he is a little bit of a troublemaker, as it, as it turns out, because um, scientists have believed that just like um, uh, 
jellyfish, regular jellyfish, or um, the, the, the kinds of organisms that make um, uh, coral reefs, the coral organisms, these types of things, they believed that comb jellies had a blind gut. Right. They didn't have an anus. And William Brown has caused some trouble. What he's done is he has actually checked that. Uh, he has he's he's made these videos in which he had comb jellies eat organisms that have been engineered to right. glow in the dark. Oh, so you can actually watch the digestive tract. So you can actually watch these little fish and other organisms being digested inside the comb jelly. They have a very interesting gut that sort of sends out sort of um, uh, you know bits of itself into different parts of the organism so that instead of having a circulatory system, the food sort of gets digested and absorbed directly. Wow. Uh, in any case, he, he uh, was videoing this, and lo and behold, there are these pores at the end of the gut. And no that kidding is where the waste is excreted. So that has created a little bit of a, um, let's call it a crisis, a little bit of an exciting time when it comes to evolutionary biology. What it does is it says, well, all of these theories about how the gut developed um, the mouth and the anus in a step-by-step -step way in, in which tenophores fit reasonably neatly, they're wrong because tenophores actually don't have a blind gut. They have a very complicated gut with, um, uh, with a way of excreting the waste out of something other than their, than their mouth. So, um, so it no longer looks like a floundering attempt at progress by blind evolution. Somebody designed the thing that way. Or that it, it, at well, least we can look at it and say that. Yes, we, I mean, certainly you and I can look at it and say that because we are not constrained by a metaphysical assumption that may or may not be correct, and that metaphysical assumption is, is materialism. We don't believe that when we start asking questions about where things, structures, let's say, in organisms came from, when we ask those questions, we don't say, oh, and by the way, the one answer that we are not allowed to come to is that this was designed in some way. Sure. Look, um, I'm going to do one something. It's one of the fabulous liberating things about Christianity, basically. It is, and we're not afraid to ask questions and look at data. We don't always have the answers, and sometimes the data makes us stop and think. Um, it's actually kind of refreshing not to have all the answers sometimes. Yeah, it, I, isn't it? Yeah. yeah I, 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 but, I encounter people all the time who have all the answers, and they're kind of boring to be around. Yeah, they or, or worse, they're annoying. I'm going to do something really unfair to you because there's like eight sure. minutes left in the show, and I want you to talk about epigenetics a little bit. And okay. uh, and I know you, you, you teach courses and such things that require more than eight minutes. Uh, but tell me a little bit about some of what you've seen in that field of study um, that uh, causes you to think that maybe natural selection isn't quite the powerful uh, explainer or rationale that we thought it was. Sure. Let me, let me begin by just defining a couple of terms so everybody knows what we're talking about here. Sure. First of all, I think most people understand what the genome is. That's that 
sequence of DNA letters that encodes information in our bodies. And we know that, that we pass DNA from mothers to children. And of course, fathers play right. a role in that as well. When a child is conceived, um, they, basically the DNA from the mother and the father is combined together in that new um, new baby sure. uh, at, at, at the time of conception. And um, so everybody has understood this for quite a number of years now. But it turns out that there are other kinds of information that are inherited from parents to children. Probably one of the uh, most spectacular ones that, that has been carefully studied in human beings has to do with some events in, of all places, Holland no, during no the kidding. Second World War. That's right. These I knew this was going to be the best program ever. I knew it. There, there we go. Well, what happened towards the end of the Second World War in Holland was that there was an extremely lean winter. Um, basically, the war had created circumstances that made it difficult to grow crops. Right. And then because of the way things went, the Germans were not ensuring that the Dutch people got enough food to eat. And people went very hungry over the course of, of this winter. This is, this is actually the time period my father was living there. I, I know okay. something of this. Yes. Yeah. So, so you could very well, your genetics actually could, could have been impacted by this, or at least your epigenome probably has been. Um, so what happened was that um, people, particularly mothers who went through this period of starvation, there were some things that changed about their genome. Not the sequence of DNA letters, but right. something else changed. And you can see the impact of those changes in their children. So their children inherited something from their mothers. It is not a DNA sequence. It's something else. Really? And that's what the epigenome is. The epigenome, you can think of it as being something like um, a recipe book. If you think okay. of the DNA itself as being like a recipe book, but um, if you look at at least my mother's recipe book, there'll be little notations that have been made in there in pencil. So they might say something like, well, um, the, uh, uh, put in, instead, of, instead of using regular white sugar here, use molasses instead right. in this thing. Or it might say, mm, there's, there's a little bit too much sugar here, so why don't you halve it to make this a little bit less overwhelmingly sweet, this recipe. I know I'm picking on sugar, but sure. it could be any other ingredient. You, you get the point. Yep. Um, now, you know, you might get that recipe book and uh, you might take a look at it and say, well, I think mum was wrong. I think that um, really we need to use three quarters of a cup of, of sugar here. And so you erase what she wrote and you write in in pencil Got it. that change. And then you pass that change on to your child. Right. Um, the same basic idea is going on with DNA. There are these little chemical notations that get made on our DNA that tell us... Um, uh, that, that, that reflect things that we have encountered in our environment. And we pass those changes on to our children. Now, you can imagine how useful that would be right. if, if you are an organism and you are dealing with a changing environment. 
what you are doing is you are taking your genome and you're making adjustments to it before you pass it on to your child so that your child is better equipped to deal with the environment that they're going to be born into. Amazing. Well, yes, it's quite incredible. Here, is, here are two major questions that epigenetics really raise about the idea of natural selection. Okay. First of all, this is a truly elegant system that anticipates a problem that an organism may have to address in the future. Natural selection cannot select for stuff that may happen in the future. That's not the way it works. It has no brain. All it can do is select for what's going on right this very very moment. Either, some, either your genetic makeup causes you to have more children or less children. That's wow. it. That's what natural selection can do, and right. it can only do it right in the moment that you're living. Epigenetics looks like something that is engineered to anticipate a problem and address it in advance. That's the kind of thing that a mind, an intelligent mind can do, but not the sort of thing that natural selection can do. Yeah. I, I tried to get you to do this in eight minutes, which was completely unfair. We've got less than two minutes left. Can you All give right, me let, the second I'll point the final in point ten really seconds? Fast. Okay. Yeah, and that is epigenetics insulates the DNA sequence from natural selection. Interesting. So it makes natural selection less effective at, 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 at using changes that occur in an unguided way in our DNA sequences to the organism's ultimate advantage. So it kind of makes, natural selection doesn't explain the origin of epigenetic systems, and it also um, uh, makes natural selection a less effective tool for making changes in organisms. So it's a pretty profound uh, difference We've had that to come into the, uh, the, the, that we're dealing with right now. We've had now. to change our thinking some. Very quickly, yeah. we're less than a minute now. You are working on a new project with Illustra Media. Uh, yes. What are you working on? We've got like 10 seconds left. Well, the latest film that we're working on, uh, the working title is called The Probability of God. It's going to be as fantastic, I believe, as all of the other Illustra Media productions. And if people are interested in these uh, awesome documentaries, illustramedia.com uh, will get their stuff kind of information. Their stuff is phenomenal, illustramedia.com. And uh, you want to go there and look for Dr. Timothy Stanish. Dr. Stanish, thank you for joining me today. It's been a delight to have you again on the show. And uh, for all of you who have been joining us by Internet or by radio, thank you for joining us. I'm hoping that you'll be prompted to become more curious yourself and start to look at the amazing things in the world around you. Until next time, I'm Sean Boonstra. This has been Disclosure. Disclosure.